Welcome everyone to uh, what is now starting to become an evening event, given our change of clocks and the winter coming upon us. Thank you for joining us for another week of the Oxford Political Thought Seminar, convened by myself and uh, my name is Usama Al-Azmi and Professor uh, Faisal Devji um, from the Asian Studies Centre. This is a, a fortnightly opportunity we have to reflect on developments in political thought within Islamic at Register. And we're delighted to be able to welcome this week Nadia Bouali and Fadi Badawil from one from the other side of the Atlantic and one from the other side of the Mediterranean, I suppose. And it really is one of the joys of actually taking things online, which uh, obviously we were forced to do a couple of years ago. But now we've really benefited from taking advantage of scholarly expertise from around the world. So I'd like to begin by introducing our two speakers. Our first speaker is Nadia Bouali, and each of our speakers will speak for about 20 minutes. She is uh, beaming in from the uh, American University of Beirut. Um, she is, of course, uh, well known to us as a graduate of the Middle East Center and uh, is currently an assistant professor of civilization studies uh, at the American University of Beirut. And you're the co-editor of Lacan contra Foucault, Subjectivity, Sex and Politics. Forgive me, the rest of your biography has suddenly been uh, cut out of my screen. And Nadia will be uh, kindly speaking to us about Is the Heart for the East and Reason for the West? Mahdi Amal's a Critique of Edward Said. So with that, we'll begin with yourself, Nadia, um, for about 20 minutes, and then we'll switch over to Fadi, if that's all right. Thank you very much. Just to add that Nadia's book is called Psychoanalysis and the Love of Arabic, Hall of Mirrors, which appeared uh, not so long ago, a wonderful read. Thank you so much. Thanks, Faisal. Thank you both for this invitation. Hi, Fadi. It's nice to be on this panel together. I'm just going to kind of jump right into it. The topic of the of kind of my presentation here or the talk is Mahdi Amir's critique of Edward Said's uh, thesis or main thesis in the book Orientalism in 1986. In 86, uh, Amir critiques what he perceives to be Said's Foucauldian account of the interconnectedness of knowledge and power in Orientalism. Amel's main contention and response to Said is that discourse analysis cannot offer an adequate account of the relationship between material conditions of production and discursive ones. So Amel's problem with the Orientalism thesis, as I will proceed to show, in the, so far as it is, you know, this kind of Saidian, Foucauldian account that is presented in it, Amel's main problem is that it leaves no outside to discourse and sees power everywhere. But not only so, its most dangerous component for Mehdi Amel is the rebuke of all modern thought as Western and Orientalizing. Of course, for those of you who, who don't know, Amel's main concern in line with his uh, uh, with his, with his general theoretical uh, and political project, uh, his main concern with modern thought is precisely the critical and rationalist tradition, and more specifically Marx, whom he regards as indispensable for any consideration of practices that are committed to emancipation, uh, especially uh, emancipation from colonial capitalism. So for Amel, an account of uh, mechanisms of domination that would be adequate for the aims of local emancipatory politics 
must be justified rationally. And this is, you know, this is something that we can talk about uh, later. What is account of rationality is and what is particular approach to this. But it must be justified rationally through grasping the singular historical process that is specific to said society, whatever society is being under investigation. In Amin's account, Said's focus on mechanisms and discourses of power as mechanisms of interpolation of what we could say for mechanisms for the formations of subjectivity occludes any possibility for understanding and thereby critiquing structures that are specific to colonial capitalism beyond the confines of the logic of representation. So Mehdi Amil has a problem with the logic of representation as it unfolds in Edward Said's account of Orientalism, and which he kind of also traces to kind of its Foucauldian roots. So Amin thus questions Said's Foucauldian account of power knowledge, right, and raises for us a set of questions. How can we ever escape power, which is everywhere, if knowledge can never be disinterested? And truth, right, as a counter to power knowledge regimes or ideologies, does not exist itself outside regimes of truth. And here, perhaps we could add to Amin's disapproval of the Orientalism thesis, that why, why would we even speak truth to power if power doesn't listen? If there is no knowledge that can escape mechanisms of power, there is no outside to power. And if this is a, given these questions, how can we then develop concepts for analyzing capitalist domination in the post-colonial world? If rationality, which is precisely what one requires to construct concepts, is complicit, and must be thrown out with the bathwater of Western thought. So interestingly, the concept that Amel was invested in developing in his larger uh, project of rehabilitating dialectics, and he has a particular approach to this. Again, this is stuff I've discussed elsewhere, but, uh, 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 but I won't spend time on this here. But the, the central concept that Amel was in, interested in developing was the concept of break or cut or coupure or epistemic cuts. One that we all know is not far from Foucault's own account of history as a compilation of discontinuous epistemes. But it's very interesting because Amel is both uh, close to this account of epistemic break, but he comes to it from a different place, not just from epistemes, but from thinking about social structure. And this is crucial in, in this. So although he's very close to this Foucauldian problem, he comes to it from a very different angle. So the problem for Mehdi Amel that can be stated, you know, if we can put it and state it uh, quite simply, it's, it's like this. If colonial capitalism sundered the history of the colonized, how can that break be superseded without reproducing fantasies of a return to some untarnished past? The very fantasies that seem complicit in extending the historicity of the colonial relation, which he will see or will he, or he will propose or he will argue uh, that Edward Said, in fact, promulgates such a fantasy. So the Orientalism thesis does not provide a horizon for politics in Mehdi Amel's account in the post-colonial world. This is the problem. What East is even salvageable after it has been discursively produced? Is that even the question to be asked? Must we simply write and rewrite history against master narratives? Is this precisely, is this the only procedure, is this the only thing uh, that we can do in, in the post-colonial moment, right? 
So Amel considered the colonial problem or the problem of colonization in these terms. Colonization introduces a rupture, a break, or a cut in social formations, a break which instills a new historical temporality. This historical temporality of, of colonial uh, societies is, uh, is primarily driven by the reproduction of capitalism, by capitalist accumulation on the one hand, but also more crucially on the reproduction of what we could call identity thinking on the other hand. And this is very important because it will be precisely the kind of uh, the accusation that Amel will, will put forth against Edward Said, that uh, the thesis he provides in Orientalism, the politics or the horizon of politics uh, that is given by that text from within the post-colonial world, right? This is Mehdi Amel writing in Beirut in 1986, at the height of the Lebanese civil war, he will argue that Saeed's account can be somewhat uh, categorized within a bourgeois nationalist identity thinking mode of apprehending reality or so on. So uh, Amel's designation of this, what I'm calling identity thinking here uh, in, his, in his works is what he calls this kind of method of thinking that is premised on the repetition of what he calls essences or what we could perhaps call a, a logic of essentialism. And what is important for us here is that Amel enlists Saeed under this form of thinking, right? Which, of course, for us is, is, sounds perhaps counterintuitive, right? In the post-colonial world, it is the, the national bourgeoisie that mobilizes this form of identity thinking. And according to Amel, Saeed perhaps unwittingly promulgates this position. So Amel argues that Saeed, like Foucault before him, fell into the trap of assuming what he calls wahdat al-aql. Right, this kind of unity of thought, or again, as I call it, identity thinking. So the, the notion of a unity of thought in the West about the Orient uh, creates a synchronic frozen structure that cannot be overcome. Said claims that Western thought is permeated by the discourse of Orientalism, even in its most radical thinker, most radical critical thinker, thinker Marx. No one can escape the discourse of Orientalism. And here, of course, I mean, it's interesting that only perhaps someone like Montesquieu does in, in, in the book, right? This requires some qualification. Is it because he's so juridical, so liberal? I mean, it's an open question, right? But Ahmed proceeds to read Said's account of knowledge as a positivist and historicist form of knowledge. Again, these are variations, what we could call variations of uh, uh, identity, uh, versions of identity thinking. Because what it does is it conflates what Amel calls an object of thought with a real object. It confuses the two. Said, according to Amel, confuses a representation, the Orientalism as a representation of the East, with the object itself, Western thought tout court, all, all of Western thought. But for Amel, neither the East nor the West exist as real entities outside nationalist ideology. They can only exist from within the purview of nationalist ideology. Because both sides, the East and the so-called West, are permeated by one primary contradiction and antagonism. For Amel, that is the, the antagonism of class or the real of class struggle. And of course here, again, side note, class is not understood here as a sociological category, nor is it uh, understood within the terms of what we would think about the logic of representation or as a category of representation, but as a site of antagonism, of really existing contradiction, so to speak, an unconscious motor of history somewhat. But Said's conflation, according to Amel, does not allow for a properly objective account of material contradictions within thought itself, 
which in turn arises, these contradictions in thought are not separable, but rather arise from real conditions of class struggle or class antagonism in society, both in theory and in reality. And it is class society for Amel and the colonial kind of uh, what he calls a colonial mode of production and outside it, it is class society that is the condition of possibility for all identity thinking, right? The East and West are identities only for bourgeois consciousness, as he says, and they are equally, and we should you know, critically assert that they are equally traversed by a negativity. The West is not one, neither is the East. They can only relate to each other as opposing identities only if we are able to think the negativity, right, this kind of universal class antagonism, the class struggle that is kind of uh, the real universal of, of capitalist society that permeates both and relates them to each other. But I want to get into a bit into the nitty gritties of, of Said's particular reading of Marx and what is at stake in it, right? Said's particular reading of Marx in relation to the discourse of Orientalism in the West is premised on the argument that Marx, the individual thinker, Marx, the person, so to speak, could not escape the hegemonic ruse of reason and rationality, which is a unity, right, wahdat al-aql, this unity of thought, insofar as it relates to individual thought from the outside, right? So there's this kind of unity of thought that is Western reason, Western rationality, Western epistemes and discourses that uh, somehow you know, relate on, onto the individual from outside, like external, right? So Marx's shortcoming in Said's reading is that he could not relate to or recognize the existential human condition of Oriental suffering from colonization. So Said's rejoinder to Marx is premised on the assertion that he cannot be simultaneously compassionate to the East and rational about the so-called revolutionizing of relations of production that has been, you know, that is, that is instilled by colonization, by capitalist colonization. So to kind of continue in this line of it, if Marx feels sympathy with the suffering of the East, he cannot possibly think the conditions of that suffering. Thus Marx has to disavow the suffering of the East. Amel argues that Said here adopts a classical approach to contradiction. A statement cannot be true and false at the same time, right? How can Marx feel bad about the colonization yet rationally accept it as for the higher good, right? This is the contradiction that Said points to in his reading of Marx. Either Marx should condemn colonization in both feeling and thought, so to speak, or his contradictory statements are deemed as false, as a disavowal that is complicit in the promulgation of Orientalism and colonization. However, Amel reminds us here in his, in his assessment of this argument that the very first premise of the dialectic, which is, I mean, Amel is committed to dialectical thinking, is to overcome the limits of classical logic and reject the principle of non-contradiction. Contradictions in, in a dialectical approach index a truth that is not simply irrational and absurd, but essential and actual. For Amel, the insight lies not in saying that discourse is contradictory, but only in saying that we must be able to grasp reality in its concept, right? In other words, the reality that Marx attempts to grasp in his analysis of a mode of production and the encounter between colonization and capitalist expansion is in itself contradictory, really contradictory, and historical through and through. 
So condemning colonization without acknowledging its role in transforming relations of production in a Marxian dialectical approach that Amel wishes to defend is simply not enough. And that's precisely kind of the, the rejoinder, right, that Said pauses against Marx. So in Said's reading, Marx's disavowal of compassion returns somehow in his affirmation of the rational unfolding of history defined as a history of progress, uh, disavowed compassion in this sense masquerades as violent reason. And, you know, this is a familiar argument. You know, we hear this argument a lot. It's not just one level by Edward Said, right? But this is uh, the, the familiar story, right? The familiar caricature of Marx. Marx as a teleological thinker, like all Western rationalists. Marx's account of history has a, has a telos. This is a long discussion, but we can suffice it to say here that we can always remember at least one point for Marx, right? That he states that all of capitalist history all of this capitalist history is understood as a prehistory of humanity, right? This is a claim that Marx makes in the, in the manifesto. There is indeed a capitalist telos, but it is somehow without a teleology. It ends with an end of history, not with a beginning, not with a continuation of its, of its historicity. It isn't a stepping stone to progress, right? But has the capacity to reproduce itself or reproduce what, uh, what Mehdi Amel calls uh, a or regression, again, between quotes, we can come, come back to this, spuriously ad infinitum, right? This is the problem, is that the moment that you have this capitalist temporality introduced with colonial capitalism, the tempo that, it's, that is put to work, the historical uh, temporality is one that is premised on the reproduction of, of regression, crisis, uh, essentialist logic and identity thinking, right? This is the stuckness, as he calls it, of history as it unfolds in these colonial or in the post-colonial world, right? So Amel adds uh, to this picture in his works that prehistory takes on these different forms of, uh, in the post-colonial words, where post-coloniality does nothing beyond extending the conditions of domination. I mean, this, is, this is his problem in 1986, right? The post-colonial doesn't lead to emancipation by necessity. There is no telos. If anything, there's a stuckness in cycles of repetition within post-colonial nation forms, right? That are instilled by particular state apparatuses by ideological formations, such as, for example, sectarianism in the Lebanese state. To go back to Said, Said interprets Marx's rationalization of colonization as a renunciation of what he calls an existential human identity. Amil translates it as this is what Marx lacks, right? The disavowal of the heart affirms abstract ideals, according to Said, like freedom and necessity. So Marx, the feeling individual, is a pawn in the drama of collective and abstract uh, Western reason. Amel argues that this presentation of Marx cannot but be grounded or for this presentation of, of thought as being an individual thinker versus, you know, the, the unity of thought that is being kind of impressed on the individual thinker that they cannot escape, right? There's no exit from power. There's no exit from discourse. There's no exit uh, from, uh, from hegemony, right? So uh, Amel proposes that this presentation of Marx can only be possible through a discursive account of knowledge because knowledge is always already this will to power, right? This is always the structure of knowledge. As such, Marx's individual knowledge cannot 
escape the collective discourse of Orientalism. There's no way out of the discourse of Orientalism. Moreover, Marx's rationality is nothing but the reflection of collective Western reason. So ultimately, Amel questions the Saidian reduction of knowledge to discourse. He argues that this reduction affirms a bourgeois understanding of sociality as a collection of individuals, right? So society is a collection of individuals that expresses itself in one discourse. So if knowledge cannot escape domination by Western reason, and if no individual subject in the West can escape Orientalist discourse, again, besides Montesquieu, right, this kind of question, then by what means, Amel asks, can we think universal emancipation? So if Marx, the critic of capitalism, is included in the discourse of Orientalism and thus rendered unfit for emancipation in the non-Western non world, what is left for the East other than the heart, right, other than Marx's heart? If Marx were to give the East his heart and reserve reason for the West, then what can the East really do with his heart, right? With Marx's heart, with his compassion for the violence of colonization. And moreover, the question that, that Amel raises, what is Marx's heart without his mind? Compassion, sentiment, and sympathy, although commendable human traits, once we can wrestle them out of so-called kind of Smithian understanding of faculties, they do not make for the possible reorganization of social life beyond the capitalist domination possible. Colonized nations in particular, according to Amel, need less feeling and more Marxist science, right? This is, again, we can discuss this, but this is his position, right? More Wissenschaft, which is neither positivist nor simply a historical. You know, granted here that although Amel does sound like a crude mechanist defender of the so-called iron laws of history, we have to remember that he was precisely the, the, the kind of the, the thinker who had this main cons consistent argument with what he called, you know, again, between parentheses, Western Marxism, because colonized nations have their own singular trajectory to kind of, you know, the, an attempt to exit from uh, capitalist relations, which is not only dictated by the developments in Western capitalism. So Amel's main question in his response to Said, or his main problem, in a sense, can be posed in this way. Why can't one think and feel at once without that translating into the impossibility of knowing in a disinterested manner? Can we not condemn violence while seeking to understand it and critique it? If there can be no disinterested knowledge or no truth from where to level a critique uh, from, then by what means can we apprehend violence and social conditions of violence and the means to their overcoming, right? So Amel's main question and his response to Said can be posed as such. If the heart is for the East and the mind for the West, then to what whole do these parts correspond? Are they parts of a whole that can be identified dialectically? A whole that would be more than the sum of its parts? Or to be more, more precise, to quote here, a whole that is equal to its parts, but not equal to them as parts, to quote from Hegel. What organic totality can be achieved from the part-whole relationship if we take East and West as parts, a heart and a mind, right? So the dialectical approach, the one that Amin kind of tries to pursue in this, in, in this discussion of Said and, and Said's problem with Marx and the text, the dialectical approach would seek to unravel how the whole is present in each of its parts, yet remains autonomous from them. That is the dialectically achieved relation itself, right? 
Amel argues that Said's problem, the unequal partnership of parts, East and West, heart and mind, cannot be solved in Said's own terms, inside the limits of Foucauldian discourse, but requires a dialectical account of the totality. That is, you know, capitalism for Amel as a, a totality that appears in all these parts, right? So if Said's positivism reifies the two distinct entities of East and West as heart and reason, Amel questions the use of heart and mind as representatives of East and West and asks, to what possible whole or totality do they belong, right? And here, you know, again, as a background for those of you, if anyone is doing research on Amel, the reference here for him is someone like Lucien Seb, right, in the French context, who is, uh, makes an argument for, you know, something that he calls a scientific theory of emergence that is dialectical but not vitalist, right? This is an interesting kind of sphere of influence, and French epistemology was very much crucial for Mahdi Amel's works. So to go back to this problem of organic totality, right? The organic totality of capitalist society is nothing but a totality that cannot totalize, right? This is precisely its thing. It's, it's a whole that cannot be one, right? This is, the, this is the problem. It's permeated by contradiction. So in other words, for Amin, what he wants to propose is to kind of, in a certain sense, push, if we were to push the Saidian critique dialectically, beyond the limits of its own Foucauldian uh, kind of boundaries, right? We'd have to consider, or Amel would propose, that we have to think of capitalism, right? This totality that does not totalize as the condition of possibility, the Grundlag, as he says in, in, his, in his formulation, for both East and West. And colonization is the base, the Grund, right? That gives capitalism its fundamental character. And it is in this dialectical sense that colonial capitalism installs a new ground, albeit violently, a new explanatory base for a next level of transformation, so-called transformation, or perhaps not, also reproduction of the same, you know, conditions of immiseration, which, you know, uh, for any society. And so it's not necessarily a trajectory of progress, a telos of progress. So particular nations, colonized nations in the East, can no longer refer back to their own histories. This is precisely their problem, right? This is what, what Anna says. You can no longer refer back to the histories in these nations as the support or the base for the present or the future, because now they are bound to the laws of capital, right? The Grundlag, the conditions of possibility uh, that are at work. And to, to this historicity, to its own logic of its internal relations, right? This kind of the ground, the groundwork, the base of capital. In other words, the colonized and the sense are doubly alienated. And of course, this is not just something we hear in Ahmed, right? You hear this in Fanon, there's a claim that's similar like to this in du, du Bois. You know, this is something that a lot of Marxist thinkers who are, how do you say, engaging with the problem of capital from not its center, so to speak. We can also, you know, whether there is a center and periphery in this model, but this double alienation. Of, colon, of the colonized, right? They're both, they're both alienated from their own history, and they're also alienated within the real abstractions of kind of capitalist society. So colonial nations are thereby locked into what Amel calls their stunted histories, relegated to a kind of a tragic repetition of essence. The one, a tragic one because it is uh, one that is uh, an irresolvable, irresolvable conflict between the institutions of the post-colonial state Right. So like the sectarian state in Lebanon, for instance, 
and the demands for emancipation from from domination right so the the historicity of this the, so the, the, there's a locked in one is locked into this uh, the, this problem in the, in the colonized world so amel argues that a dialectical account of a relational totality is needed right one that has a non-linear dynamic can this account allow for the overcoming of conditions of inequality without an account of what kind of body we have to assign to the heart and the mind, right, the East and the West? If it is simply a demand for equal recognition, is not all recognition anyways premised on a misrecognition, right? A mismatch of organs without a body, a fragmented body in a body, which always leaves something more to be desired. Right. It's a question that that Amel pauses, right? And and what what he's saying is that what it should leave us more in desire of is is a dialectical account of totality or that can somehow you know reconstitute the body of this division between heart and heart and mind, east and west, right? So Amel argues that it is precisely this kind of account uh, that is needed. And here, I mean, if I'm at the end of, the, of my time, you know, Amit proceeds to kind of make an argument and, you know, he's very perceptive because there are people, you know, engaging with this kind of thing today that what's happening in this Foucauldian analysis of discourse is that you have what he calls this kind of cultural structuralism bound together with a Nietzschean nihilism, right? That there's a problem, right? That the, in this proposition that there's a unity of reason is possible based on this kind of alliance, theoretical alliance. And this is a problem. He identifies this as a kind of a, you know, the real problem that dialectical kind of uh, uh, thinking has to engage with, right? Because it forecloses any emancipatory potentials of rationality, which Amel remains committed to, right? This is at the height of the, again, the Lebanese Civil War, 86. Already the so-called leftist uh, uh, kind of a project has, has, has somewhat been defeated in facto, de facto, in the progress of the Civil War, right? So I'll jump a bit ahead to kind of a, a, a conclusion here. Hmm? The problem that, that somehow Mark this thought on the Orient raises for Amin, right, is that this is thought cannot but be understood as being, as falling into a system of knowledge, relations of power, also relations to the self, like Marx's own contradiction with his own self, right? He verifies Orientalist knowledge, affirms its relations of power, uh, and allows it to trump his feelings, right, and his own relationship to himself. Like Marx, the individual, is bereft of critical acumen, as is any other self, any other subject. This is the problem, right? Amin doesn't talk about this, but I think this is something to proceed from, to kind of continue with, that he's basically saying in this account uh, that Saeed takes, you know, with Foucault, and that what is lacking is any possibility of a subjective, you know, subjective moment, an account of subjectivity that can exit this discourse, right? That can be somehow material for uh, projects that are really trans transformatory. right? So Marx, the individual, is also bereft of critical acumen like any other self, right? Said and Foucault uh, somehow assume, I mean, Amel asked, how do they uh, escape this loop of power, right, which kind of somehow uh, wraps everyone into it, right? So Marx, like all other European thinkers of his time, was like a fish contained in a bowl of water, right, that he did not see. The captive of a discourse that Said only through Foucault could somehow identify. So Amel asks, how do Foucault and Said escape the fishbowl of Western reason? The iron rules of discourse, unfortunately, in the account that they provide us with, don't allow subjects to kind of exist outside of them. We are all already inframed in discursive practices, caught up in their images, and always destined to speak a will that is disguised as truth to power. Right. 
this is a kind of a provocative ending that Amel, I mean, he precisely, he precisely ends his critique with this tone, right? This is a problem that he somehow leaves us with or raises. Okay, I'll stop here. Sorry if I went over time. Thank you so much, Nadia. That was really uh, illuminating on so many levels and actually sort of uh, traversing of so many different intellectual streams. And I think it will give us so much to discuss at the end of this. I want to remind participants that you can uh, always ask uh, questions in the Q&A and we will try our best to come to your questions um, in the second half of our session. I also want to sort of take the opportunity, Nazia, to mention your book again, because I, I did admit to mention it. Thank you, Faisal, for highlighting it. But you have a book published in 2020, Psychoanalysis and the Love of Arabic, published by Edinburgh University Press. So I, I do encourage people to try and get their hands on that. Next, waiting very patiently, Fadi. Although I don't think you needed a lot of patience to enjoy this uh, wonderful exposition by Nadia. Um, Fadi Bardawil is um, a professor at Duke University, an anthropologist by training, and currently based at, the at Duke University with research that focuses on the international circulation of critical theory, uh, the genealogies of uh, post-colonial critique and traditions of intellectual inquiry and modalities of political engagement of contemporary Arab, Arab thinkers. Um, and you also, of course, have a book published in the same year as Nadia. Uh, your most recent book is uh, entitled Revolution and Disenchantment, Arab Marxism and the Binds of Emancipation. Um, I'm sure that your two lectures will um, be in um, a wonderful opportunity for dialogue. So uh, I'll let you uh, go ahead with it, uh, Fadi. Thank you. Thank you, Sama and Faisal for extending the invitation. Uh, it's nice to be on the same panel as Nadia. Let me say a few things before I start reading my paper. I think it's very refreshing that Nadia went first because I'm going to be talking about a period which is 20 years before the period that she's talking about. So uh, Mahdi Amel's text, Responding to Said, was published in the mid-80s. I'm going to be focusing on the, the mid-60s to the mid-70s. And this is, uh, I think... Uh, important for a variety of reasons, because in the mid-80s, someone like Mehdi Amil was on the defensive after the defeat of the left and the Palestinian resistance in the wake of the Israeli invasion of 1982, despite uh, the leftist resistance to Israel. But there was a sense, you know, a decade after the beginning of the Lebanese civil and regional wars, that that revolutionary subject that's supposed to bring about change and emancipation has been fractured along international sectarian lines on the one hand, and uh, more importantly, in the case of Amil, as a conversion of the revolutionary subject into an Islamist revolutionary subject in the wake of the Khomeinist revolution in uh, the Iranian revolution in 79, and it's sort of like uh, Khomeinist resonances. In that text that uh, Nadia mentioned, Amil is really important sort of adamant to argue against what he dubs the obscurantist forces, by which he means these sort of Shia Islamist militants. And he will end up assassinated in 87. Um, it's most widely known that it's at the hand of these uh, factions that he was assassinated. This is important because I'm going to be talking about 67 and 61, which is the period when people were not very much engaged in the politics of theory that sort of Nadia so eloquently talked about, but rather they were very interested in formulating a theory of politics. And it's also the period when someone like Edward Said, who was a detached uh, professor 
at Columbia University gets his political awakening as he sort of mentions in his memoirs and turns his gaze back in a moment of recovery, discovery of identity towards Palestine and, and commits himself to Palestinian struggle. So there is in that moment that I'm going to be talking about a common, a common sort of a difference. The difference is the distinction between the, the politics of theory and the theory of politics on the other, on the one hand, but there was a common conjuncture, which was basically that of the Palestinian revolution that Said joined and that the Lebanese left was part of. I don't have a PowerPoint. I have a paper in seven sections that, uh, that I will read and hopefully won't go over time. Section one, the ubiquity of the 1967 defeat. There is no doubt that 1967, which marks the swift military defeat of Arab armies against Israel, has a ubiquitous historiographical presence. It is the turning point par excellence. You will find it referenced in Arab newspaper articles, in Arab human development reports put out by the UNDP, in the critical literature discussing artistic, intellectual, and political trends, in books on contemporary Arab thought as the marker of what is contemporary, etc. This use of the date of a military defeat as a marker for different genres, and not, for instance, the date of events that are internal to these fields of practice, is symptomatic of the saturation of Arab cultural scenes with politics. Pierre Bourdieu's theories on the increasing autonomy of cultural fields away from the sociopolitical contexts and external constraints find their limit in the neocolonial and postcolonial Arab world. Section two, 1961, the forgotten date or the birth pangs of the new left. Unlike 1967, the end of the union between Egypt and Syria in 1961 with the dissolution of the United Arab Republic is now largely forgotten. This event, which exists outside of the contradiction with colonialism and imperialism, was crucial for a generation of militants which will constitute the 1960s new left. It constitutes the first major setback of the anti-colonial nationalist regimes less than a decade after the 1952 Egyptian revolution. This intra-Arab event ushered in the first imminent critiques of the regime that pointed out the gap that separates their pan-Arab ideologies from their practices that could not sustain a union for more than three years. It inaugurated an early critical reflexive turn that found in Marxism a critical theory and a weapon of political transformation, which by conjugating together internal class contradictions of these societies with an anti-imperialist agenda, was much more conceptually sophisticated than Arab nationalist ideologies. Some of the comrades who founded Socialist Lebanon, an underground Marxist organization composed mostly of militant intellectuals in the mid-60s, came from this cohort of disenchanted Arab nationalists. The now distinguished historian and well-known public intellectual Ahmad Baidoun recalls the importance of 1961 in one of our conversations. He says, and I quote, it was a blow that changed the meaning of the world for us. The political history of the last three or four generations does not really stop sufficiently at that date. They stop more at 67. For us, 61 was decisive. It is this disenchantment, and here I'm quoting him again, which gave rise to the desire and the need to know these societies that are called an ummah, by which he meant an Arab nation, not an Islamic nation. 
The question of society by Don presses on was the true and effective mediator of Marxist revolutionary theory. The year 61, as I said, ushered in an early reflexive moment that turned away from the nationalist rhetoric against external enemies towards criticizing the progressive regimes in power and diagnosing the internal political contestations lodged at the heart of these societies, their social structures. It laid the first bricks of what would come to be known after 67 as the new left. Underscoring this genealogy is I think important to forestall an easy subsumption of the Arab new left by the trope of the global 60s or a global 68, which takes the student and worker demonstrations of France at their center. Section three, down with the Arab regimes, another Marxist turn. In the wake of the 67 Arab defeat against Israel, the Arab nationalist movement, previously gravitating in Nasser's orbit, will increase its leftwards radicalization that had started earlier. The shock of the defeat spurred a demand for a theoretical renewal in the direction of more solid and scientific theories than the Arab nationalist foggy rhetoric, as well as a rethinking of the modalities of political struggle and the agents that will carry out the task of emancipation. Would it be a popular war of, liber of liberation? Would it take the form of Palestine commando operations? Or would it remain in the sphere of conventional warfare conducted by the armies of the Arab regimes? Vietnam as a model was discussed at that time. In addition to its more rigorous conceptual arsenal, Marxism, unlike Nasser's dismal failure, seemed to work at the time. The successes of the Chinese, Cuban, and Vietnamese revolutions fueled the hopes of the militants who joined the Palestinian resistance or oscillated in its orbit. There is, of course, a distinguished genealogy of the collapse of conceptual truth onto political victory on the left. Little has evacerated Marxism, Russell Jacobi noted a while ago in one of his signature distilled sentences, more than its acceptance of the judgment of history as the truth itself. Victory, he reminds us, is not proof of truth. Marxism, he says, ventriculizing these, this sort of uh, this tradition in, in leftist thought is compelling precisely because it's accurate. And finally, because it's successful, it works. The strengths of the working class, as well as the victory of several revolutions, leave little doubt. Success is the proof, end of quote. Section four, long live the revolution, long live the Palestinian revolution, our historical chance. On November 8, 1969, the Cairo agreement was signed between the PLO and the Lebanese army, legitimizing the PLO guerrilla actions on Lebanese territory. After 1971, Lebanon became the only vital space for the resistance in the aftermath of its clashes with the Jordanian army in 1970-71 which resulted in its defeat and relocation of the relocation of its command to Beirut. Around the same time, the Syrian regime also shot its borders to Palestinian guerrilla activity. Socialist Lebanon had been criticizing the Nasserite regime since its founding in 1964 and had no visibility on the national political radar. Things will change after 67. In the absence of masses, since they were a bunch of militant intellectuals, it's their theoretical virtuosity which positioned them to the left of Arab nationalist regimes and the Lebanese left 
that managed to draw attention to the organization at a time when there was a high demand on Marxist theory. It will result in their merger with the radicalized Lebanese branch of the Arab nationalist movement led by Mohsen Brahim in the wake of the 67 defeat. They brought the gift of theory to the much more numerous and veteran party founding together the Organization of Communist Action in Lebanon in 1970. Around 40 years later, Wadah Sharara, Socialist Lebanon's main theorist at the time, recalled that era. He says, in 1969, we entered a different epoch. It's important that this different epoch be looked at from its internal side, i.e. how we were seeing it and experiencing it. At this time, one was 26 or 27 years old, not an old man, but with already 10 to 12 years of militancy, part of them in the French Communist Party. He studied at Lyon, uh, where Mehdi Amel studied. They both studied in the same French city and in contact with European Marxism. And then he said, there was this tremendous internal shock where it was revealed to us after what was called the defeat of the regimes, i.e. Nasserism, that this was our historical chance. Section five, two resistances, the Palestinian and the Lebanese. I cite, the ruling Lebanese interests cannot acknowledge the links that tie its farmhouse, i.e. Lebanon, to the region's causes, wrote the anonymous author, Wadah Shalara, in the piece titled Two Resistances, the Palestinian and the Lebanese, a central piece from 1969 that captures the height of the activist fervor at the time. The long and scathing article against the Lebanese authorities located the Palestinian resistance as the external revolutionary agent that will detonate the contradictions of the system. The Lebanese position, wrote Sharara, i.e. the authorities' position is clear. Lebanon is of the Arab region. Its economy and the prosperity of its financiers and merchants rise on the role they play in that region. Lebanon, however, is on the margin of the Arab region when it comes to the political problems threatening to destabilize those who rule it." End of quote. The main diagnosis in that article constituted a strong indictment of the Lebanese state's politics of neutrality in the Arab-Israeli conflict and the country's laissez-faire capitalist system. It was into this situation, characterized by Lebanese economic integration into and political isolation from the Arab world that the Palestinian resistance made its entrance. It unmasked the real face of the Lebanese regime. For how can a regime that plays the role of a watchdog of imperialist dependence, they ask, agitate an entire people for a national battle? And how can the Lebanese system, which survives on the remains of imperial interests, go through this battle that will put its banks, agents, and summer resorts in danger? At the heart of this theorization is a view of the Lebanese political, sectarian political system as devised by French imperialism, a system that preempts the elaboration of a class interest driven, of, sorry, of class interest-driven politics. Sharara writes, the sectarian formation, which was made the geographic and political basis of Lebanon, is able to stifle every form of political maturity that carries the masses to fuse with the Arab region's battles against imperialism. This is not only because it puts every political discord to the test of civil war, 
but because it stifles every disagreement by annulling its true political aspect, a conflict of interest within the framework of power, by making it subserv subservient to the sectarian conflict that conceals and fragments the issues pertaining to power. This makes political opposition, whether it wants it to or not, acquire a sectarian dimension. In this situation, there is no national party that covers the Lebanese territory and no Lebanese ideology and no Lebanese history, end of quote. This idea he will sort of develop later on when he will write in the wake of the civil war about dominance without hegemony in Lebanon. The homogenizing force of capitalist expansion, which is supposed to drown the ecstasies of religious fervor and chivalrous enthusiasm in the icy water of egotistical calculation, stopped at Lebanon's gate of sectarian, politi of sectarian politics. Sectarian and regional distinctions, socialist Lebanon right, bring to the attribute of the citizen other attributes that dominated the Sunni from Beirut, the Maronite from the mountain, the Shia from the south or Baalbek. The coming into being of the abstract Lebanese citizen that would follow an interest-based politics was prevented by the political system that produced, and here I cite again, hybrid citizens. Section six, the dualities of two resistances. Two resistances was built on a series of dualities that sought to account for the blockage of revolutionary practice by noting the disjunction between the economic infrastructure and the political superstructure. Lebanon, it argued, is characterized both by the propagation of the universal laws of capitalist expansion in the economic sphere and sectarian political breaks in the political system that were devised by French imperialism and which impede the birth of interest-based politics of citizens. This duality is also inscribed at the heart of Lebanon's exploitative relationship with its Arab regions, Arab neighbors. Lebanon is economically integrated into the Arab world, thriving on the investment of Palestinian capital in 19, after the 1948 Nakba, while being politically isolated from Palestine via its politics of neutrality in the Arab-Israeli conflict. The ruling alliance itself reproduces this duality since it's conceived as the partnership between the banking and commercial bourgeoisie of the coast and the land-owning families of the mountains. The hybrid Lebanese citizen is also the outcome of this dual structure which combines the universality of the bourgeois notion of citizenship and the particularity of sectarian affiliations. Sectarianism in two resistances plays a very different role whether we are talking about the Lebanese ruling alliance or the people. Sectarianism, by splitting the Lebanese citizen, is responsible for stifling class-based politics. This split needs to be overcome for a mature interest-based political practice to take place. However, if we shift our analytical gaze to the composition of the Lebanese regime, we get a different picture. The split between universality and particularity is not internalized in its hybrid subjects. Rather, it becomes a sociological feature of the two groups, the bourgeoisie of the coast and the land-owning lords of the mountains i.e. socialist Lebanon does not attach a sectarian attribute, Christian or Muslim, to the Lebanese bourgeoisie. Sectarianism is not treated as an essential component of the Lebanese bourgeois identity, but as a veil that masks its defense of its privileges. The reason for that, I think, is that during his militant days, Shara's analysis had to provide an account of the particularity of Lebanese sectarian politics and loyalties on a Marxian ground that takes class politics and exploitation as the universal underlying realities that explain the Lebanese social formation. He was faced with a puzzle of how to square the proliferation and multiplicity of apparent infranational communal loyalties 
and political divisions with a notion of politics that's predicated on the contradiction between labor and capital. The differential distribution of these binaries, economic integration, commensurability, banking bourgeoisie, and on the other hand, political isolation, incommensurability, political feudalism, hybrid citizens, and the different meanings sectarianism acquires are his answers to the conundrum of explaining along class lines, the multiple sectarian allegiances and divisions within the frame of one exploitative system. The Palestinian resistance as an anti-imperial Arab agent by excellence, after it made its entrance into the based politics, will contribute according to their theorization to overcoming this system's duality. Its intrusion unmasked the bourgeoisie's exploitation, which can no longer veil itself with sectarianism and refashioned the sectarian subject into a revolutionary one. Revolutionizing the Lebanese polity and the solidarity with the Palestinian resistance were not envisaged as a bloodless undertaking. Yet the impact of the revolution socialist Lebanon predicted would transform the clashes, and here I quote, from a sectarian conflict into a civil war, end of quote. I quote again, if democratic national rule cannot be reached without a civil war, they wrote, the real coordination with Fida'i Palestinian actions cannot also take place without exposing the southern region to an Israeli invasion, end of quote. Ferrara's 1969 prognosis was right in predicting the coming conflict and wrong in predicting its nature. Six years later, a civil war erupted, splitting the country along sectarian lines. Israel invaded in 78 to push the PLO away from the borders before invading again in 1982, which this time around resulted in forcing the PLO out of Lebanon. I conclude with section seven, titled Coda in the Wake of a Civil War. This text, published in 1969, Two Resistances, had multiple political and academic afterlives, both in Arabic and in English. 40 years later, after its publication, the famous Lebanese poet Abbas Boydoun recalls the beginning of the collaboration in 1969 between the organization of Lebanese socialists, which he belonged to, and Socialist Lebanon, before their union. Around this time, he says, I founded the Lebanese rubric in al Hurriya, which did not exist earlier. I wrote it through an understanding and an alliance with Socialist Lebanon and predominantly with Waddah, with whom we had a developed relationship. And around that same time, he adds, I wrote a theoretical text that is similar, parallel to Socialist Lebanon's text called The Two Resistances. Mine was called A Look at the Palestinian Resistance and the Lebanese Reality, something of that sort. The theorization was the same. They were both based on a frightening idea. It was the theorization of the civil war. It ran along the lines that this was a prosperous country which cannot generate a revolution for a number of reasons because it has benefited from Arab defeats and it has a certain level of economic leisure, etc. No true revolution was possible here unless it comes from the outside. In the first month of the Lebanese civil war in 1976, so seven years after the publication of the text, Aziz al-Azmi, the Syrian historiographer and Islamic studies scholar and Sharara's former comrade, offered an account of the beginning of the civil war that recapitulates the text's main thesis. He wrote, through the Palestinians, the Lebanese entity was reinserted into its Arab context and deprived of that artificial isolation which had hitherto served to maintain the political safeguards necessary for its international economic role. End of quote. 
In a similar vein, Mohsen Brahim, who sat at the head of the Organization of Lebanese Socialists before becoming the Secretary General of the Organization for Communist Action for nearly 50 years, dubbed at the time the Palestinian resistance as the lever that will lift the Arab National Liberation Movement. On the 40th day commemorating the assassination of George Hawi, the former Secretary General of the Lebanese Communist Party, which took place in Beirut in 2005, Mohsen Brahim issued an autocritique of the Lebanese nationalist movement's involvement in, 70, in the 75 war, which centered on two major points or fault as he, faults as he called them. The first consisted in Brahim's acknowledgement that in supporting the Palestinian struggle, the left went too far in burdening Lebanon with the military weight of the Palestinian cause. And the second was that the left deemed it easy to board the civil war ship under the illusion of cutting short the road to democratic change." End of quote. A major figure in socialist Lebanon at the time commented on Brahim's autocritique. He said he used the same idea found in two resistances, but flips its valence. In the late 60s, the resistance was the detonator, the lever, the catalyst that in alliance with the left would explode the system. In 2005, Brahim, the major political leader of the Lebanese New Left, observed that the left went over the top by overburdening the country with its support for it. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Fadi. Really, um, and and I, if I may say so, you have the uh, sort of voice of a wonderful radio presenter. So I could hear, listen to you all all day. Um, thank, you. thank you both for really sort of fascinating opening papers. Um, we now have around half an hour for some discussion, and uh, I want to remind sort of audience members, some uh, esteemed academic colleagues uh, in the audience, if you have any questions, please feel free to put them in the Q and A, and we will pick them up. But I, I actually wanted to uh, invite Faisal, if you would like to sort of jump in at this point and perhaps provide some reflections on the paper and ask some questions to our uh, panel. Thank you. Sure. Thanks very much. Uh, I really enjoyed both papers. I actually have questions for each of you, but maybe I can ask the first one to Nadia and then we can see if there are any other. And then I can come back, Fadi, um, my question to you. Nadia, you know, uh, I see why you are placing Said with, with Foucault. And there is a critique to be had of Foucault, which you you do, you and Rohit do in, in your Foucault contra Lacan book. But I wonder if it may not be more productive to counterpose Said and Foucault here, because it, you know, it might allow us to actually make more sense of, of Said and your critique of him. I mean, already it's clear that you know, Said's idea of Orientalism can be so extensive and found everywhere precisely because it's not a Foucauldian discourse. It is not informed by the kind of discipline and regulation that modern Foucauldian discourses are seen as possessing. And therefore, Said can locate it you know, in the time of the you know, Perso-Greek rivalry of, of ancient times to the contemporary day. And he can also find Orientalism in properly constituted in Foucauldian terms, disciplines, anthropology, political science, et cetera. It really doesn't have a disciplinary existence of its own. So that's you know, already very clear. But what I think is interesting is how Said has to really struggle with Foucault. You know, he wants to take on board some of his categories and ideas and sort of conceal others. So you know, quite apart from repudiating Foucault's anti-humanism, because Said is all about humanism, 
and Foucault's focus on discontinuity rather than continuity, whereas Orientalism is all about continuity, you know, on occasion, Said seems to come close to a kind of Foucauldian, if you will, form of negation, you know, in that famous statement, the Orient does not exist, but he never really, to my knowledge, follows it up. And I just wonder whether that, in a way, gets at the nub of the argument that at Mehdi Amel's argument, as you, as you retell it, because the negative is never available for Said dialectically, and therefore it can never be the impetus for freedom as it would be in a dialectical schema, but rather is hidden away in the figure of Orientalism itself, which I think is so supercharged with being precisely because it includes the being of the Orient itself, which otherwise is said not to exist. You know, it's a kind of double being almost, I think that's, that Orientalism represents. And you know, what you, what you say about a critique of representation, I entirely agree. A critique of representation can only be conservative and predicated on the recovery of identities because it's about discovering the truth. And yet, as Amel points out in your telling, such a recovery actually is impossible given the premises that in this case both Said and Foucault share. So I, you know, do you think that in a way the relationship between Said and Foucault, one mm. way in which you can describe it is by understanding how Said is so anxious about what to do with negation, the negative and the discontinuous, quite apart from the kind of obvious things about anti-humanism and all the rest. And it, it's almost as if it has to be Orientalism is required for its continuities are required for that. Mm -hmm. No, great. That's a great question, Faisal. Thanks, as usual. No, I mean, this is um, honestly, it's interesting to raise this in relationship to all of Said's influences because you could, I mean, you could also do this, let's say, with Said's reading of Adorno or his relationship to Adorno or how he interprets Adorno. He has a free hand, if you would, if we can say, and kind of how do you taking what he wants and not taking what he doesn't want, right? So this is kind of whatever, syncretism or putting together these things in a way that renders them somewhat at the end, you at the risk of a consistency, it creates a theoretical quandary for the reader, right? It creates a problem. Yeah? Yes, I mean, it would be interesting to read them against each other, surely in the question of anti-humanism. And also, I think it would be interesting to... The, the problem would be, in a certain sense, so Said is a humanist, right? But yet his account of subjectivity is completely liberal. Right. This is a completely rebel. I mean, it's it's an individual that he takes for subject. I mean, you see this clearly in his other texts on whatever, on late style and his engagement with someone like Adorno and, 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 and so on. So and this is something that you would think, you know, there's also a problem with subjectivity in Foucault. I mean, I think that's what I was kind of trying to get at, which is a crucial problem that obviously Mehdi Amel doesn't frame it in these terms, right? He's not dealing with the question of subjectivity. I mean, he's a, he's a bit of a classical dialectical materialist at the time he's writing, right? but I think you can, how do you say, supplement those shortcomings by introducing this problem, right? In the sense that inside account, right, Marx doesn't escape the critique precisely because there is no subjective how do you say, kind of uh, a moment or possibility outside the discourse, outside, you know, Give and take the differences that you point out, which I, I, I say, you know, I think is, is, is probably accurate between some of his account of discourse in Foucault. And then in Foucault as well, there is no outside. Huh? There is no outside to discourse. I mean, in fact, 
Foucault, I mean, and arguably here one could add even Althusser to push it to another place, they both reproduce the same problem. They produce this kind of bad account of materiality. You have materiality constituted by discourses and knowledge systems and so on, and then you have whatever the subject is just kind of being imprinted on. There's, they recreate this inside-outside problem, right? And I think, you know, this is precisely why you know, I mean, and I think, you know, although Mehdi Amel doesn't have these terms, why does he so much stick to this problem? Like, like he really laboriously, you know, Marx can't think and feel, Marx feels and how does this work? What, who is Marx here? What is Marx, if not, you know, uh, the critical subject, the subject that, you know, is looking always for this negative and so on. So, yes, I mean, this would be, this would be an interesting thing to engage with. I mean, the, the tensions between Said and Foucault and, uh, Precisely in this question of, you know, uh, Saeed's kind of liberalism, and I think Foucault is not simply a liberal. I think things are much more complicated there, right? So this is somewhere to, one could, could could follow through this. But I hope in this kind of response, I just restate what it was that was interesting in the sense this what I name as being this kind of missing thing that Amel never names, but is trying to kind of how do you say sort out, right? How 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 to think of Marx in relationship to Orientalism, right? The individual and the discourse, right? But yeah, I mean. Thanks for that. It's it's very interesting. I'll, I'll think about this. Mm -hmm. So Faisal, uh, if it's all right, I'm going to maybe direct my, I have a series of questions, but these could actually, because you're both dealing with Marx and my questions are somewhat general, could actually be picked up by both of you. So perhaps Faisal, I'll go and ask Fadi a question. And uh, Nadia, if you'd like to sort of uh, do ta'liq on the sort of, on, on, on uh, Fadi's remarks, please feel free. So in a sense, one of the things that I always come away with, I'm, I'm someone who works on uh, contemporary Islam and Islamists uh, very often, though not of the type that you have in Lebanon, which is quite distinctive with Shia Islamism, but I look in at much of the Sunni world. And reading a, uh, an author like Elizabeth Kassab and her wonderful sort of kaleidoscopic view of, the, um, of Arabic thought, one does get the impression that a lot of the ideas that are uh, in some respects, engaging the European um, sort of uh, thinkers of the last couple of centuries are in many respects quite cacophonous. They're still trying to figure out, okay, how do we interact with each other? We're coming from such different places very often. And Lebanon is a perfect example of this because you have a mosaic society with people with so much diversity uh, of backgrounds. But, you know, when you compare it to the different national contexts, it's even more cacophonous in some respects. And Add to this the sort of propagandizing of Islamists about Marx as this mulhid, this person who's basically the arch anti-religion person. And suddenly Marx's appeal is kind of like washed away for large numbers, large sections of the population. And I kind of wonder in that sort of context, to what extent Marx can be salvaged, you know, in a sense, this is a problem we actually suffer from outside the Middle East as well. In, in the Western world, neoliberalism has been dominant, just has been raging for decades, you could say. And the left has been battered for perhaps as long as that as well. I, I sort of look with hope at South America at the moment. But in that sort of a context, is this also reflective of a global problem in terms of the left's inability to really think in any unified fashion to create meaningful social movements uh, aside from engaging in what are, what are very interesting academic debates and uh, you know I think everyone in the room enjoys them thoroughly because we're we're all academics 
but translating from that into something into the realms of practice i guess the main question i'm asking is is that even practical in the context that you see in lebanon in the mosaic society of lebanon and what are its prospects outside the space of lebanon as well it's a huge question for you and, and nadia and i don't expect uh, sort of straightforward responses or anything like this, but i'd really love to hear your thoughts on that how many days do i have to respond to this <laughs> how many years is the response perhaps <laughs> so, no thank you i mean it's a big question uh, if if you permit me i want to say a couple of words on sort of the conversation between nadia and and faisal on slide and, and nadia Amin before i go back to this big question i think what is because they're related i think uh, you know if you read sort of um, Saeed's reception in the U.S. and you put it in conversation with Zahamid's reception, uh, he was slammed by post-structuralists for not being Foucauldian enough. Hmm? Someone like Jim Clifford, the historian of anthropologists, did that. So if you take both of these sort of together, you, you get a sense of what kind of machine this text is, so to speak, and how it lends itself to sort of to different, uh, different readings. That's the first observation, because of course there are people who sort of try to take Saeed away from Foucault, into the sort of Lukash Adorno, Raymond Williams, Gramsci line, and some of these are students. So in a way that the text lends itself to these different things. And of course, Said's emphasis on the author in Orientalism is one way in which he radically differentiates himself from that question of discourse. So Amel's reading, I think, of, uh, of Said does two things. It's first of all, in my opinion, it's sort of very much inflected by Amel's uh, thorough immersion in the French intellectual field. So he collapses Foucault and Said into each other, which is basically, I think, some uh, what, as you know, Faisal and Nadi were saying, is not collapsible. But also, I think the reason why he focuses so much, you know, there's so much like transference on these three pages is precisely because of the Iranian revolution, precisely because they are on the defensive at that point. I mean, he will he will get assassinated two years later. And that moment, this, this is a partially an answer to your question, Osama. That moment is basically in the mid-80s, it's the moment of the Asala debates, of basically the question of authenticity, where, where Marxism, where literally like militants, Islamist militants are argue, fighting, but also arguing against Marxists, telling them they, they are... They really have a revolutionary project at that time, which was called Iadat Bina Shaksiya Islamiya, to reconstruct the Islamic personality. And one of their main targets is to go against the materialism of the Marxists. So it happens by guns, but also happens by argument. It happens by literature. It happens by uh, Khomeini's letter to Gorbachev in the late 80s, which is a very interesting document in which he talks about, you know, the fact that you are you are towards the end of your empire and and we have something that you don't have, which is basically the dimension which goes beyond materialism. I mean, if you don't know this letter, I would sort of encourage you to read it. So, so that moment, that moment is not only, I think, about sort of post-structuralism versus like Marxism or Enlightenment and Enlightenment, but really, really it's a moment in which like they're being like Marxists are being attacked from their east by basically the Iranian revolution and being cornered by, by, by from their west by post-structuralists. And, and Amel is trying to find a way, a breathing space in a way to, to do that. Now to go back to the present and to your, to your, to your question, I do personally think that sort of precisely because we are in the wake of decades of uh, neoliberal policies that Marx is more relevant than ever in order to understand our present. Now, there's a difference between 
a Marxian grid of analysis. And what I tried to talk about in the paper, which would a Marxian grid of analysis, which basically, you know, with people like David Harvey and what happened in the past three decades in American academia or people like Zizek is quite, you know, quite prevalent. But if we go to the question of what does it mean now to actually uh, basically militate and form a political party on the basis of, of Marxian principles, I think here uh, there's questions that that have to basically be answered, which are, which I hear you sort of pointing to, which are questions that have to do with the question of difference. So the big question is, is, is everyone who needs to sort of, you know, join a Marxist, Marxist political movement be a, a priori a secular subject, for example? Or are we only, can we have, you know, when, when sort of, when Nadia talked about Said's view of sort of, uh, of, indi of individuality as a, a, of liberal subjectivity, is a liberal subjectivity a precondition for engaging in Marxist militancy or not? These are big questions, I think. Of course, if you go back to history, you know, there are ways in which that stark contrast between, uh, you know, sort of secular militancy and, and, and religious militancy can be sometimes sort of more complicated. There were movements, for example, in Egypt in the 80s of Yasser Islami, sort of like, you know, Islamic left and things like that. So, that, so I think the question of Marx needs to be sort of asked on two levels. One is on the level of the grid of analysis, and which I think is an easy answer, which is yes. And two, the more difficult question, which is what form would a Marxian political organization uh, basically take in the future? Uh, and I think that that is an answer that cannot be answered a priori theoretically. I think it has to emerge from, from below, from practice, to see how can people come together in order to basically further that. Because one of the one of the other issues that sort of which which makes us very different from the moment of the 60s is that in the last four decades, if you look at political theory, the concept of the political and the concept of power has been expanded tremendously. So the idea of sort of thinking that power is basically, you know, class exploitation or imperial domination, I mean, you know, the, the sort of uh, agendas of inter intersectionality, different kinds of agendas in the social sciences are trying to deal with this sort of, and someone like Wendy Brown noted this a long time ago, the fact that the notion of power and the notion of political have been really, really sort of stretched. And if you want to think about sort of the different modes of sort of exploitation domination, without falling into the trap of uh, a liberal politics of recognition, then that's the big question for the left, is it? How do you, how do you found a project that takes all of these things uh, together? And I'll stop here for now. That's a, that's a wonderfully sort of like, it's amazing what you did uh, when, we, when you initially started with how many days do we have? So Nadia, do you want to add anything there? Yes, I mean, I want to kind of just to follow through this, um, you know, this point that uh, Fadi uh, kind of uh, notes, right, that Edward Said, uh, Mahdi Ahmed, this debate becomes more interesting in the context of kind of the internal, how do you say, inter uh, um, ongoing uh, you know, antagonism or contradictions between the left and the so-called authentic cultural forces that express whatever the real geist of the people and, and, and so on and so forth. Right. So this is this is important because I think what I was trying to point to in the in the in the talk is that uh, Amel was saying that precisely this, you know, that that Orientalism or the account that Said offers, right, of this kind of, you know, um, the the what happens with with the transformation of entire, you know, 
people or cult cultures into this, you know, into this kind of representation, right? I mean, somehow, if, he, if he's so irked by this in the context of an internal struggle with these kind of Islamist uh, 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 or Muslim politics that are emerging that, you know, as Fadi pointed out, of course, end up to his direct assassination, right? I mean, he's literally killed by these factions that he's kind of uh, engaging with, or theoretically, not just him, also Hassan Mruwe, others of his time, right, that are that are doing this kind of uh, work, arguing that not all culture is revolutionary culture, right? We're trying to formulate this, this problematic, how to think about culture in, 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 in from a kind of a Marxian account. But what Amal is saying here is that the, the Edward Said's um, uh, argument on Orientalism unwittingly, you see, affirms or can be taken to affirm these forms of politics that are unfolding within the so-called kind of local context, right, within the so-called uh, uh, post-colonial context itself, right? So this is the, this is the, you know, this is the, the irony of the problem, right? That it's precisely the same. So rather than say that there's, like, there can be a kind of a recourse to some kind of authentic Right, this is precisely the kind of the point I was raising that the colonized are doubly alienated. There's no way to go back to some kind of culture, to some kind of authentic belonging. Right, there's, there's no way to reassert that. Right, after this break or cut has happened, huh? and and so he, he the pushing forward of so what does Orientalism give us? Right, what kind of politics can ensue from this? Huh? What kind of identity are we supposed to rehabilitate in the wake of it? so-called huh? uh, kind of uh, 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 mutation or, or kind of transformation in the eyes of the West and how that kind of, you know, takes, becomes actually a mechanism of power and a ruse of kind of, so, so this is, the, I mean, I think this is the crucial question that Amin is, is raising. I mean, why then in the middle of this kind of ongoing combat, right, theoretically, practically, politically, why engage with Edward Said? Because he's seeing it as as actually being locally articulating somehow in a very sophisticated manner, the very position that he himself is in combat with. This is, I think, what I was kind of trying to point out to, right, to kind of point to in this, in this context. Thank you so much. Um, I mean, it's really the paradoxes of Saeed because he's been a source of great empowerment for post-colonial theory and, and, you know, developments in, I think, Western uh, sort of theoretical spaces that have allowed for a space for in some respects people of color to articulate you know perspectives that were systemically marginalized but at the same time sort of reinforcing one thinks of to a certain extent someone like the Jalal Adam's response as well as you put it and Mahdi Amal who I mean thank you for introducing me to him I, I need to read a bit more in some of these areas Faisal I I'm very conscious of the time we have five minutes left yeah, I, I just I mean I take Nadia as saying that there's a structural similarity between the structural, between the post-structuralists in some ways and the Islamists. Yes. Uh, and indeed, uh, it's no accident that Edward Said is such a, a celebrity among the Islamists. Of course. Uh, ends up so, doing kind of a rewriting of the history of Islam. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah. But, you know, I, I, in the Western I, Academy, of course. Yes, <laughs> yes. like, I mean, I think this kind of double, you know, this doubling of where this is happening. Yeah. Very intriguing, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that you know, we probably fall into the trap of authenticity talk if mm -hmm. we refuse to see the structural relationship between them and yes. we hive off the Islamists as being sui generis, mm -hmm. uh, whereas they probably aren't. Uh, but Fadi, you know, I was 
you know, I was really struck uh, by, you know, you're beginning with these dates. Uh, and I entirely agree. I think 1961 really deserves much more attention than it has uh, received. And you have 1961 as opposed to 1967, but also 1968 and the kind of global student movement. I might add, you know, how would this range of dates, what would it look like if you included 1956, 57, the Suez crisis? But I wanted to ask, you know, the thing about the United Arab Republic and it's coming apart, the very fact that it was put together seems to me to be, if you will, it was put together almost as a kind of rehearsal of a Leninist style national question. It was, you know, I mean, whatever the class background of this, this strange contraption was, this uh, state separated by other territory, is that it's, it seems to presuppose, if you will, the Soviet critique of the nation state and the posing of a national question. And I say this because in some of my own previous work, I've been I've thought about how it was that in 1947, Pakistan is created also in two separate pieces, <coughs> separated by India. You know, that what a bizarre idea of a state. And of course, in that case, explicitly, they are looking at the Soviet Union and other kinds of, if you will, post-national or at least non-bourgeois national forms of state making without themselves being proletarian in any sense or Marxist. And in a sense, it made me wonder whether, you know, with the 1961 also signals the return or the, the genesis of, if you will, classical or bourgeois forms of nationalism that come not before the Leninist version of the national question, but after it. You know, might it be possible to think that because the, U, the UAR is such a, from that point of view, from the bourgeois, nation, the nation status point of view, it's such an aberration. But if that is indeed the case, then the standard issue conventional nation state can only be a hollow entity because it's already been, it's almost like an atomism so that we can't look at it in the way that we tend to look at national movements. You know, first you have colonialism, then you have nationalism, then you have something else happening because there seems to be a back and front uh, thing here. And I've been thinking in other respects of the end of the post-colonial state. And it seems to me that um, the splitting apart of Egypt and Syria on this can serve as one example of that. I mean, I had originally look at the, uh, looked at the end of Pakistan in 1971 with the uh, creation of Bangladesh. Uh, which finally becomes a conventional, if, if you will, nation state, except of course it isn't. And I, I, I took that as being the end, at the very end of decolonization, if you leave South Africa out as a special case, you have suddenly, there's no more decolonization, but what you have is the end of the post-colonial state itself. And now it's post-colonial states that are being exploded or, you know, and precisely through the logic of civil war. And that might allow us to think about the Lebanese civil war also slightly differently. Again, not as an indication of a place which has never become a nation state, properly speaking, but as one that exists in the wake of nationalism or in the wake of the nation state. Sorry, it's a bit incoherent, but does that make any sense? I was just inspired by your foregrounding 1961. No, because it allows yeah. us to think it all anew. Thank you. This is, I mean, for me, it's very, very provocative. I really need to think more about this. But so thank you very much. 
I mean, one small observation I will make is that, you know, that sort of three years is, does not compare with basically the sort of timeline of uh, of the splitting of Pakistan in 71, which is, you know, more than more than a decade, a bit like a decade and a half. So maybe, maybe it would be sort of uh, imputing too much on that event in its founding and its dissolution to take it as an early sign of the end of the post-colonial state and the way in which maybe it could be more productive to think through these questions. A second minor observation on the question of 56. Um, this generation that I was interested in were mostly born in the early mid-40s. So they they sort of they were kids when 56 happened. It was very striking for them, but there was no sort of like sort of theoretical output. Or, you know, they didn't, they were not part of an age group in which they could sort of think think through that. 56 had different ramifications, I think, for earlier generations. And the reason why I was interested in them is precisely because this is these are Marxists who started out as Arab nationalists at the time when you know there was the sort of the, the Arab CPs were a bit discredited by uh, sort of towing the Soviet line along the partition of Palestine in the, in the UN in the 40s. So they came to Marxism as the first critics of national liberation. So this it's it's a very condensed history of a generation which basically thinks, like believes in the promise of the nation, then realizes that it's not all about the outside. And then when once you remove that lid, which is colonialism, we're going to unite automatically, which is why 61 was such a shock for them. Because they really believe that 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 we are one nation divided by by basically colonialism, and once colonialism is out, then of course we're going to unite directly. So, I mean, that's sort of a circuitous answer to your to to basically you know the sort of Leninist national question. I don't know actually. I don't know if if they looked at that when 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 they did that. I need to sort of I need to do more sort of. Um, Digging into 61, which is not premised on the oral history interviews I've did with how 61 is remembered and how it led to sort of uh, fights within the Ba'ath Party, for example, or uh, moving out of the Arab national Arab nationalist movements, etc. But I think it's a fascinating idea uh, to to think about these sort of uh, non-territorially contiguous unions, as you mentioned, you know, and like what is it that they what is it that they say as an what is it that they say about the nation state as a form? But in the case of the Arab world, I think that's that idea of, you know, the nationalist idea of sort of removing colonialism and uniting directly was that. So the question of really understanding two things, Marxism was an answer to two things. One is, well, there's something else which is called the social structure. But then there's something else which is very important, which is uh, the sort of class composition of these regimes. You know, there's an Egyptian Marxist trio that was very important for this uh, for this generation, which is uh, Samir Amin, who wrote under the pseudonym of Hassan Riyad. He wrote this amazing book that was never translated into English, I think, called L'Egypt Nasserian, Nasserite Egypt, which is based on his working in the state with basically, like in, I think, the Office of Planning or something like that. Uh, the second one is Anwar Abdel Malak, his uh, book, Egypt, a Military Society. And the third... Uh, they are still alive, are the Bahgat al-Nadi and uh, Adil Rifat, the duo that write under the name of Mahmoud Hussein, who wrote uh, Class Struggle in Egypt. So these were older people who were older. They were not born in the 40s. They were born in the 20s or the 30s. And they were uh, sort of Marxian critics of the 
class compositions of these officers and of their petit bourgeois nature and how there's a caste of bureaucrats that's developing around them. And there's a very, very prescient sort of, in a way, analysis of the class privileges that the army officers as a caste sort of, uh, sort of develop. So out of this, out of this universe, I think, uh, comes uh, an articulation of a critique of these progressive regimes, which is way before, I mean, not way, but like a few years before 67. So, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm being, again, very, very coherent in answering you, but I do think that that's what that's what I would say, actually. You know, I would say that, you know, 51, 58, 61 in itself is definitely worthy of sort of going back and reworking it and seeing the, the model. But also, I don't think it could be, you know, given the same weight as the 71. But, you know, the Lebanese Civil War was for me very, very interesting as an early model, as an early model, uh, which is, which sort of in a way shows a failure of a particular nationalism at the same time as there was a resurgence of nationalism that gets inscribed in a book like Ben Anderson's Imagined Community. Like if you read the first pages of Ben Anderson's Imagined Communities, what 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 the book says is that basically, oh, what what's happening in Southeast Asia? We have basically Marxist regimes that are having wars against each other. So obviously, there's something else here, which is not ideology, that can that can explain what's happening. What's happening between Vietnam and Cambodia? Therefore, there's this thing called nationalism, and we need to go back and study it. So in a way, these anachronisms have always been fascinating for me. You know, so like that this question of the dissolution of, of Lebanese nationalism at the same time as the nationalist question is sort of gaining more and more traction and then gets inscribed in theory, the, the anachronism of the Palestinian question, which is basically a national liberation question in the age of you know, decolonization and after and the age of post-coloniality. Post and how do you make sense of that in the Arab world? You know, the sort of persistence of these sort of like uh, anachronisms in a good sense, not in the sense that they're related, but in the sense that they're they're out of times. I'm sorry, I thought, I think I spoke too much. No, thank you oh, so much great. Yeah. to both of, uh, sorry, uh, I just wanted to actually take the opportunity, even though we've gone a bit over time, I'd like to give Nadia the opportunity to add anything you may want, wish to. I also am conscious, Nadia, that it's probably very late where you are, so I don't want to sort of insist or anything like that. But if you want, you can add um, something. No, I'm good. I'm good for now. Thanks. All right. Fantastic. Um, Faisal, if it's all right, I'm going to sort of wrap up and just briefly let audience members know that, uh, and of course, panelists, if you'd like to join, in a fortnight's time, we'll have our next session. So I'd first like to thank Ferdi and Nadia for really giving us a lot of food for thought um, about, in a sense, mid-20th century, uh, mid to late 20th century Marxist thinking uh, in the Middle East. Um, and uh, next week we're going to shift from the left to uh, to the from the modern left to friendship with a special focus on the medieval era and some thoughts on South Asia in more recent years. Uh, we're going to have Nuha Al Shar from the American University of Sharjah and Sher Ali Tarin uh, from Franklin and Marshall College, and they will both be uh, speaking. Uh, Nuha will be speaking about friendship uh, in Islamic ethical political thought, and Sher Ali Tareen will be talking about uh, debating Hindu-Muslim friendship after empire. So we really look forward to having people join, and I once again conclude by thanking uh, Nadia, Fadi, and of course Faisal for participating in the discussion and co-convening with me, um, getting things off the ground. 
thank you all really and i look forward to continuing our conversations please do join uh, in future weeks if you can as well thanks thank, thank you, you.